Amen. I just want to thank my husband, as always, for um, giving me the opportunity and believing in women speakers. You know, I was um, telling someone, I kind of grew up pretty strict, pretty strict teaching, but they always believed in what women had to contribute to the church. And even transitioning to Vertical Encounter, my husband has never um, held women back. And so it's kind of shocking now to see, you know, people say, hey, I don't believe in women speakers or anything like that because it's foreign to me. And so I thank you. I thank you for always believing in me, always giving me an opportunity, pushing me, um, letting me bounce everything off of you. I trust your mind. I really do. And I love you. And uh, to all the mothers, happy Mother's Day. As he said, we are the real MVP of our home. Like the sacrifice never ends. It never, ever ends. And so I salute you from one mother to another. We are in this army together. Can I get a hoorah from all the mothers? Yes. Okay. So let's just get a couple of things out of the way. I took my shoes off, not because I believe that this is holy ground, but because I don't trust them, they are brand new. And I know what God wants to do tonight, so I'm not going to be held back by any shoes. So I took them off, okay? But if you can get your Bibles ready, and I really need you to follow along because I'm going to be moving quickly. <clears throat> and go to Second Kings. Listen, I'm coming for your hope tonight. I'm coming for your hope. 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 8, and it says, Now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. She said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled up chamber and let us set a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. And it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. Now, Shunem, the city that they were in, the name of it is actually the double resting place. It denotes a place of hospitality. The people were given to hospitality. It may have even been considered kind of a tourist town, but its name literally means the double resting place. And theologians believe that this woman, this woman of prominence, actually ran a cafe or almost a restaurant on her porch off of a busy road. And so when passerbys would come, that she would ask them, come in, come into my restaurant, come into my cafe and have something to eat. And Elisha was one of the ones who went by there constantly, and he would come in, and he would have food. Now, the Bible called her a woman of prominence, but women in that day and time were not really respected unless they were people of wealth or their husbands were men of wealth. And so for her to be prominent enough and considered to be important by the Bible, it denotes wealth. It denotes that her husband was a respected man, that he was wealthy. And if you don't believe any of that, you tell me who can just decide at a whim to just add another room onto their house if they don't have money. 
just to say, you know, just whenever Elisha may be in town, like this was his room. This wasn't a room that she was renting out or a room that she was adding for her mother to come stay in or somebody else. No, this was Elisha's room that she handmade, that she decided we're going to make this just for him. And the Bible says that she put a table, a chair, and a lampstand in this room for him. Now, I want to key in on something in verse 9 where the Bible says that she perceived that he was a man of God. She discerned. It literally means to discern or to know within herself. Now, this could have been the result of her experience. If she ran a cafe, if she ran a restaurant, she was used to people coming. And when you're around a lot of people, you get good at reading people and you start to notice certain things. Or it could be the fact that Elisha never really addressed anybody unless he did it through his servant Gehazi. He did not speak to anyone directly. His servant did all the speaking for him. And so she could have discerned from that that he was a man of God. But either way, the Bible says that she perceived and she knew that he was a man of God. And because of this, it created a way. She instinctively created a way to gift to the man of God a resting place. It wasn't just enough for him to have something to eat, but she knew that as a man of God in his travels, he needed somewhere to rest. Everybody say amen. In verse 11, and it says, one day he came there and turned into the upper chamber and rested. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, behold, you have been careful with us with all this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken for to the king of the captain of the army? And she answered and said, I live among my own people. See, you have to understand in this day and time that because women weren't really respected, we were often married off and sent to faraway places or traded or we were rarely in the place that we were born unless we had not been married yet. And so for her to say, no, you don't have to talk to the king for me. You don't have to politic for me. I don't need anything. I'm with my own people. In other words, she was saying, I'm good. See, this is the thing about a true giver. You're not really a giver if you don't know how to receive. You can say, I'm good at giving, I'm good at giving. But some of us, when someone tries to reciprocate our gifts, we become uncomfortable. Because we get so used to giving and we encapsulate ourselves or insulate ourselves in the things that our own abilities can do. And for her to be a woman of prominence and a woman of wealth, she probably was used to giving. She probably was used to people asking things of her all the time or coming to her or needing something. And it probably was very rare that anyone says, what do you need? Maybe she answered out of instinct because listen, don't look down on her because how many of us, when people say, how you doing? We say, oh, I'm fine instinctively. And we know that it is the worst day of our lives or that we're under depression or we're tired or we're bent down. But listen, instinctively, we'll say, oh, I'm good. 
Or if someone who you're used to giving to says, what can I do for you? You say, oh, no, you're fine. But within ourselves, we have needs. But out of instinct, we will say, I'm good. I'm okay. I don't need anything. I'm amongst my own people. My husband takes care of me. I've got a good job. I got this. I got that. And, 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 but Elisha, who realized that when you accept gifts from someone, see, it wasn't until, it wasn't just that she built this thing for him. The Bible says that after he'd rested, after he began to partake of something that was made for him, he became grateful and he realized that a gift this good deserved another gift. And he was set on blessing her because a true giver knows that the cycle of giving and receiving starts with the giver. How people say, did the chicken come before the egg? Let me tell you something. The giver is the one that starts the process. The Bible says it's better to give than to receive because you're literally starting this thing. And when you give, you know that you are in a position to receive. It is a cycle. It is an ongoing cycle. And so Elisha was set on blessing this woman because of the gift that she'd given. But here she was not used to receiving. And how many people can be honest in saying you've given and you've given and you've given. And when it's your turn to receive, you might feel just a little bit awkward or you feel a little bit weird or you feel like you may not deserve it or you don't know how to feel about something like this because you're used to giving. But listen, God is not someone that looks at the gifts you've given and say you don't deserve anything in return. But are you standing there saying, I'm good? Are you saying I'm good? Is it instinctive? Have you, you answered before you thought about it? And so because Elisha was set on blessing her, in verse 14, so he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, truly she has no son and her husband is old. Don't you just love? how Gehazi went behind the closed doors. Elisha may not have known, but Elisha was looking for that one thing. Because I don't care how much money you make, I don't care who you know, I don't care about your successes, I don't care what your career looks like or the wealth that you've accumulated, everybody has that one thing. That one thing that you've exhausted yourself for, that one thing that you have tried over and over again, and somehow it just falls between the cracks of your fingers, or it's the one thing that all of your money cannot buy. It's the one thing that all of your politics cannot bring to you. It's the one thing that in all of your toil, your sweat, and your tears, and your giving that you cannot accumulate on your own. Everybody has that one thing that we exhaust ourselves for, and at the end of the day, it is an impossibility and when it happens and if it happens it will be a sign and a wonder because our ability cannot bring it and Elisha was looking for that one thing in her life because she was a woman of prominence and she had money and she could put wings onto her house and everybody was coming into her business and her business was blessed and everybody liked her and her husband and her family and they thought they were great but he was looking for that one thing and that one thing turned out to be most things that a woman wants, which is a child. She had everything but a son. 
And to add to this, the Bible says that her husband was old. Now, do I need to explain what exactly that means? Theologically speaking, she had to be at least 20 years younger than her husband. And for Gehazi to note that he was old, it means that the problem lay with him. So have you ever been in a place to where the thing that you want the most that you cannot have is not necessarily your fault, but it is a consequence of what you are attached to? It is a consequence of your commitment and what you have vowed yourself to. And so it's not just the pain of not having it. It's the realization that it could be yours if it were not for. So it's not just the weight of I have all of this and I have all of that. Isn't it funny that she was prominent and wealthy because of her husband, but she also could not have what she wanted because of her husband. And so here it was, Elisha was looking for the one thing. Look at somebody and say the one thing. Listen, I know you in here today looking good. We come to church. We look polished. We look great when people say, how you doing? Praise the Lord. Bless the Lord. But listen, you got one thing today. Some of us got two things. Some of us has got three and four things that we have tried everything within our capability to get and we can't get it on our own but listen God sees your one thing and because of your giving and because of your gift and because of your hospitality and because of what you have laid down he is coming today for your one thing And so, Elisha, in verse 15, he said, call her. Call her again. Because, you know, in our pride, she probably scampered away. Oh, I'm fine. I'm among my own people. All right, y'all. Have a good day. He said, oh, no, get her back here. Get her back here. And he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, the open door. Then he said, at this season and this time next year, you will embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. In Hebrew, this word lie literally means to cause to fail, spoken in vain, found to be untrue. Listen, it's something about when God begins to stir up hope on that thing that we've buried. Because he's not going to go all the way around all of the things you're asking for. He's looking for the one thing that you've buried. That in your experience, you've convinced yourself it's not possible. In your experience and everything you surmise and everything you've put together and every plan that has caused to fail, you said this is not possible. And so when God starts to resurrect that thing and say, maybe you should try again. Maybe you should hope again. You know what we start to do? We say, Lord don't lie to me. Don't come for the hope or the desire that I've buried. I've already given up on this thing and said it's not going to happen and it's not a possibility. That is too late and it's too far gone and I'm too old or I'm too young or I'm too stupid or I don't have enough money. And when God begins to come in, he begins to say, by this time next year, if you embrace this word, you will have what I am speaking to you. And out of fear, we don't grasp a hold of the word right away. What we do is say, 
say, don't lie to me. Don't cause me to hope for something that is going to fail. Don't cause me to desire something that has hurt me so much before because the Bible says that hope deferred brings about sickness and it brings about depression. And it's not that we don't still want the thing. What we're afraid of is the pain of when it doesn't happen and the pain of when it doesn't come to pass and the pain of what it looks like to hope for something that just might not happen because I tried it this time and I tried it that time and I brown nosed this person and I paid off this person and I asked for extra hours on my job and I did this and I did that and I tried to be friends with her or friends with him and it just didn't work and when God starts to resurrect that hope and that thing that you hope for we say God don't make me hope for it because it hurts too bad to hope for something that may not be mine but the Lord is saying by this time next year if you will allow yourself to hope for what you have lost all these many times before and the Bible says in verse 17 that the woman conceived and bore a son at that season the next year as Elijah had said to her, as God has said to us, as God has said to you. And in verse 18, the Bible says, when the child was grown, the day came that he went out to his father, to the reapers. He said to his father, my head, my head. And he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat her He sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. Now, this just don't seem fair. They believe that he'd gotten up at 6 a.m. to try to beat the heat, to try to beat all of the conditions that were persisting and went out with his father And was brought to his mother at nine. And that he sat on his mother's lap. This son that she didn't ask for. Because she'd already settled in her heart. That this isn't going to happen. And so she had to sit there. Mothers, come on, I'm tugging on your heart. For your child that you didn't ask for. And you didn't think would be yours. But you're already attached. And you're already connected. This dream. This promise. That, that, that came to you. Without you having to ask for it. And you're holding it. Watching it slowly fade away. For three hours. She held her son. And can you imagine the first hour. Some of us would have already been to Botsford Hospital. Some of us would have already been on our way back to Elisha to try to fix this, but she held him. And can you imagine what was in her heart? No, God, you didn't give me this boy for him to die. I didn't ask for this. He's going to be fine. He's just a little bit sick. And then the second hour rolls around and she starts to notice that the heat is leaving his body and he's starting to get more quiet and he's not saying much, but she's set on the fact that she didn't ask for this thing. And 
hey, he can't be about to die because I didn't ask for this. You gave him to me. You gave me this gift. But around the third hour, you would say, why would she sit there and watch him get worse? Because when it's in your heart that you have something that you didn't ask for, you're set on the fact that this has to be God's responsibility to sustain it, right? You're not rushing to judgment or to fear. Why would God give me something just to take it? And so when the Bible says that he died at noon, can you imagine the anguish that was in her heart? How many of us would have been in the ground wailing and screaming or the emotions full of anger and and, and just full of sorrow? But the Bible says... In verse 21, that she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and return. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is not new moon nor Sabbath. He was questioning the occasion. You're going out of season. You're going to worship out of season. And she said, It will be well. It will be well. This word, literally, it was a word that she said in Hebrew, and it means, it it says salom, S-A-L-O-W-M, and it means completeness, soundness, and welfare, peace, and completeness, and number, safety, soundness, and body, and welfare, health, prosperity for me and my family. In other words, everything is all right. She didn't even waste any time telling her husband that the boy had gone on, and so she said, it will be well. Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. Then in verse 25, it says, so she went and came to the man of God to Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, behold, there is the Shunammite. Please run out and meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered again, Salome, it is well with all of us. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came near to push her away because remember, up until this point, Elisha was not addressing her. She had never touched him. She'd never gone into the room. She stayed in the doorway she'd never been in his face but she pushed past him and she grabbed a hold of his feet and he said let her alone let her alone for her soul is troubled within her and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me then she said did I ask for a son from you my Lord did I not say do not deceive me and do not lie to me listen this is the great confrontation this is the moment that we go before God when we finally get a hold or it seems like we're getting a hold of this thing that we tucked away and we resolved in our heart that it was done and over with I'm not asking for it anymore I'm going to move on with my life I'm going to push forward and then God comes resurrect 
resurrecting vision and resurrecting hope and resurrecting promises and we allow ourselves to hope again and to believe again and just maybe this time I'll get out of debt and just maybe this time my marriage will work and maybe this time I will finish school and maybe this time my relationship with my family will look like something and maybe this time I will finally not fall to this sin that so easily besets me. Maybe this time will be the time that I finally grab a hold to this thing and it's mine and I believe it and I trust and then that thing starts to go awry. It starts to fall between our fingers and we start to lose it and we say, God, why would you make me hope again? Because I was done with it. I was over it. I had set my mind that I was moving forward. You brought this thing to me. You brought this thing into my heart. You caused me to believe this thing. Why would you do it? I asked you not to do it if it was going to be a lie and if it was going to fail. Listen, see, many of us would have taken our son with us to Elisha. But the Bible says that this woman was perceptive and that she had discernment. And she went and she took her son and she laid it on the bed. Listen, she laid it on the gift that started it all. The gift that she received because of the gift that she gave. She took the gift that she received and she laid it on the source of what started with it. She put that thing on top of all of her sacrifice. She put that thing on top of all of her sowing. She put that thing on top of all of her giving and her praying and her tearing and her believing and her faith. She took her gift, even though it was dead in faith, she laid it on the gift that started all of it. And now the only thing that was left was for her to go to the source of the word. You lay the gift on the gift and then you go to the author and the finisher of all of your faith. You go to the one that started all of this and she went and she poured herself out and she said, Did I not ask you not to cause me to hope for something that would not be mine? And then he said to Gehazi, as I get ready to close, in verse 29, gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him. And if anyone salutes you, do not answer him. And lay my staff on the lad's face. The mother of the lad said, as the Lord lives and as yourself live, I will not leave you. I'm not going nowhere. Look at somebody and say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm holding on to your feet. I'm holding on to your arms. I'm holding on to the source of the word that started all of this. And he arose and followed her. Then Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff on the lad's face. But there was no sound or no response. Listen, I know he was a good servant. Gehazi did everything that was told to him. But listen, restoration was going to have to come from the mouth, the spoken word of the one that started it. And sometimes we try to go around God and go to people, you may come to pastor, or you may go to mama, or you may go to whoever else to try to revive this thing, but listen, it's not going to work. You got to go to the one that started this. And so he returned to meet him and told him that the lad has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed, on his bed. So he entered and shut the door behind them, 
both and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself on him and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned and walked in the house once back and once forth and went up and stretched himself on him. And the lad sneezed seven times, one, two, three, four, five, six, completion. And the lad opened his eyes and he called Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her and when she came into him, he said, take up your son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and she took up her son and she went out. Listen, he stretched his eyes on his eyes and his mouth on his mouth and his hands on his hands. He put sight on sight. He breathed life into his mouth and he put mobility into his hands. And I'm telling you tonight that the Lord is looking on your promise, that he's breathing life into your promise and he's putting life into the hands of the mobility of this thing. Listen, and by this time next year, if you will embrace this word, if you will embrace the hope if you would dare to hope again and believe again listen right now I could even sense the disappointment creeping up in some of your hearts where you're literally rehearsing all of the times that has failed and all of the times that you've tried and all of the moments of anger and frustration but God is saying by this time next year what you could not obtain in your own ability what you could not obtain in your own doing if you will dare to hope if if you will dare to believe, if you will dare not to be afraid, if you will dare not to talk yourself out of it, if you will dare to just trust me and let me see this thing, let me breathe into this thing, let me touch your hands, it will be life. Because some of us are nursing dead babies. Some of us are still on the porch at noon holding that thing. We never went and laid it back on the gift. We never went and walked to the source of our word and said, speak it again. You spoke it once and you made it happen. Speak it again. Speak it again. I know you hold the power. I am pulling on your perception and your discernment. The thing that first caused you to sow. The thing that first caused you to believe the thing that first caused you to hope I am pulling on it tonight I'm pulling on it tonight stand to your feet the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said that this will be a turning point in many of your lives that he is not someone who promises things that he's not going to do but many of us are at the place where this thing has died and we have given up we stop believing that the one who authored the vision and authored the promise and authored the desire could finish this thing. And I'm telling you tonight, begin to stir your hearts. Say, Father, help my hope. Come on, bring this hope to the surface. I know it's painful for some of us because... It, the, the idea that it could fail again or that we could be hurt again, but to live hopeless is to live dead. To live without hope and vision is to live without a sense of what God has on your life. So do not be afraid in this moment. I want you to begin to ask. 
Begin to ask for whatever it is, especially if you're afraid to ask for it. Father, I thank you for every heart that is present. I thank you that this is a turning point for your people. That you are reviving hope. That you are reviving vision right now. That you are reviving dreams. In the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, begin to stir their hearts. Help them to remember who you are, Jesus. Help them to remember what you are capable of. Come on and just begin.